Hello, and welcome to Walking with the Tengu, a podcast exploring classic texts for the modern martial artist. Today we're going to take a slight departure from our norm and look at a book published by a living author. I don't do this often, but I'm choosing to do this today for two reasons. First, the book is relevant to all martial artists, and second, because it is rooted in an understanding of classical thought and philosophy. So, in a sense, it is a manifestation of a similar idea as to why I started this podcast. There is deep wisdom to be found in the classics, and this book is an expression of that. The book I'm talking about is The Martial Arts Teacher by Jonathan Bluestein. Now, for the record, he very kindly did send me a copy of this book for free. But let me also state, for the record, that even if someone sends me a book for free, while I'll give it a fair shot, I'm not recommending it unless I actually think it is worth your time. While reading Mr. Bluestein's book, I noticed that he had a good balance between Eastern and Western learning, and it was clear Mr. Bluestein is well-schooled in both. The book is put together like a series of essays on the topic of being a martial arts teacher and running a martial arts school. While you could technically just pick it up and read a chapter on the relevant topic for whatever you're thinking about, it also works as a book that you can sit and read straight through. Some of the chapters do depend on the logic and thought process of the prior chapters, so it's worth reading it straight through at least once before reading a chapter on a case-by-case basis. So with that, let's get started on looking at just a few of the many lessons to be found in The Martial Arts Teacher by Mr. Bluestein. Picking which chapters to convey to you today was hard. Just about every single one had, if not one, then several important lessons about how to be and do better at teaching the martial arts and maintain a good and vibrant martial arts school. One of the first lessons had to do with attitude, both on the part of the student and the teacher. In an early chapter, he looks at the works of Confucius on leadership, noting how the qualities of leaders has a trickle-down effect on the rest of the nation. So, too, does this happen in martial arts schools. The attitude and behaviors of the teacher and the senior students absolutely sets the tone for the school. Mr. Bluestein also notes the Romans had a proverb on this, qualis rex, talis grex, as the king does, so do the people. Well, I'm not going to delve deeper into this particular chapter. This lesson is too important to pass over. You set the tone of your school's culture. If a school allows certain unsafe behaviors from a few of the students, this attitude ends up infecting the rest of the students. Even if someone resists, they will eventually find themselves on the outside of the culture of the school, and either this separation or injury will eventually lead them away. I like to say that the student finds the teacher they deserve. If you put up with unsafe, unclean, and disrespectful behavior from your teachers, then you had better settle yourself into becoming that kind of person too. A chapter or two later, Mr. Bluestein makes an interesting point that a teacher should be both approachable and yet unapproachable. What he means by this is that students should know they can approach him to ask just about any question. On rare occasions, that question may be so stupid, inappropriate, or entirely unrelated that it is worth calling that out. Surely we've all seen the individual, usually new, who asks something, framing it as if it is a question, when it is really questioning the value of the technique being taught or even the teacher. They put on the appearance of just wanting to learn, when in reality they're challenging the lesson. This is what I call the difference between questioning and asking questions. 
There's nothing wrong with asking questions when one has a desire to learn. The vast majority of the time, when someone is challenging the value of the technique, it is because they are blind to the technique in the greater context of a lesson that may actually span beyond weeks into months. At this point in my life, I don't even bother with these people anymore. The most basic answer that anyone with more than a toe in the martial arts can realize is that if someone does something that renders a technique unusable, then it is time to do something different. Consider, for example, a simple punch. Can a punch be blocked or evaded? Obviously. Does this mean we stop punching? Of course not. The punch is just one component in a much more complex system. Yet you will find so-called students who will say, well, what if they do X? As if that means the technique you are teaching is now useless. I've heard this so many times at this point that usually I just smile and say, then do something else. There is value in letting students figure things out for themselves. And that means making mistakes and coming to wrong conclusions from time to time. The process of realizing this for themselves actually makes them better in the long run. When they have to work the answer out for themselves, that sinks in deeper than when they are just given the answer. If we allow students to just vomit all over the mats as they flail about looking for answers, it can result in what Mr. Bluestein describes as, their schools develop the free-for-all atmosphere of a fitness club and can sustain neither tradition nor discipline. Imagine if we just let our children learn all the dumb lessons that others have made for themselves in the past, the hard way. Don't play in the road. Don't stick forks in the electrical outlets. Practical, experiential lessons are of value. But some lessons should only need to be taught and are best left not experienced for ourselves. I don't need to be stabbed to know that it's not something to seek out. Let's move on to the core of what I'd like to show you about why this book is worth your time. At one point in the book, Mr. Bluestein talks not just about what to teach, but how to teach it. An important topic I think all martial arts teachers should consider. You shouldn't necessarily copy the exact method of your own teacher, but should seek to improve it and make it more efficient with time. I'm not talking about changing what is taught, necessarily, but more in finding more effective ways to teach the material. Having said that, we need to first address an issue I find all too often in Western culture. Students come in expecting you to just give them all of the answers. Mr. Bluestein quotes Confucius here, I hear and I forget, I see and I remember, I do and I understand. Which I find interesting, as I've been trying to recently implement what I'm calling a see-feel-do progression in my own classes. I have the student see the technique, feel the technique, and then do the technique. What is meant here by the Confucius quote is that a verbal answer is never as good as an answer the student works out for themselves by doing. Perhaps the teacher can guide them in the right direction, but I know for myself, I can be told something many times but until I actually do it and figure it out with my own body, it doesn't really sink in. Now, I have known rare people who can just see or hear an explanation once and be able to go out and do it immediately. But that is definitely not the norm. I can show a person and describe what I'm doing over and over again. But until the student goes and tries their own hand at the technique, it's clear they don't really understand what is going on. In that sense, then, I think Mr. Bluestein is absolutely in the right when he says that good answers make dumb students. Something to watch out for in our own teaching. If you don't teach, 
then it should give you pause and consider much more carefully what and how you ask your questions. When I started out in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu during the late 90s, there wasn't much discernible structure to the teaching methods. This may in part be due to the small sample size. After all, I certainly didn't visit every school there was. But at least anecdotally, other people who trained during that time period have mentioned how scattered the teaching methods were back then. So when I started coming across schools with an actual curriculum in the, in the 2010s, it kind of revigorated my interest in the art. Since then, I've seen the popularity of curriculums explode across the community. While there certainly still are schools that don't adhere to a strict curriculum, there is still a much more structured approach to the teaching methods that results in the material being at least linked across multiple days and weeks, if not even months. Mr. Bluestein addresses several considerations to the construction of a curriculum in his book that I think would serve any martial arts teacher well. The first point he makes is that one should make the curriculum visible. This helps both the student and the teacher. If the student is handed two puzzle pieces, they may spend some time trying to fit the two together, while in reality the two pieces are from opposite ends of the puzzle. Sometimes they'll even find a way to force an incorrect piece to connect to the other piece, which of course results in further problems down the line as they start to build out the bigger picture. And this is why it is helpful to have at least a general broad overview of what one is trying to put together. With a picture of the end product, it is easier for the student to make sense of two different lessons that may or may not connect together and help them to keep the lessons in context. Likewise, having this broad structure in your own mind as the teacher helps you keep the student from becoming overwhelmed by being able to place it in the context of the greater picture, one that the two of you can both grasp as a common bridge. Of course, we've all seen the martial arts that try to keep certain techniques a secret. The irony, of course, is that just being able to see and try to train a technique doesn't make one able to actually do the technique under pressure. This is why we still need teachers who can not only see but feel what we are doing. My jiu-jitsu school places all of its curriculum online for anyone to see. Other schools in town lock it down so only their own students can see it. The irony is that we live in an age where I can search for just about any technique and find hundreds of videos from very qualified instructors breaking down what I want to learn in minute detail. I mean, just yesterday, I was caught in a submission that I've been noticing I've been tapping to a lot more lately. So, what did I do? I searched up defenses to that submission and spent some time watching people teach me strategies for handling this challenge. The next time I go wrestle someone who attempts this submission... I'll have at least a rough idea and a plan of what to do. That doesn't mean I'll get it on the first try, but I might even try to bait people into attempting the submission on me just so I can practice the defense. The point is, there aren't really any secrets anymore. And even if you can go and see someone show or teach a technique, you still need to put in the hard work, the blood, sweat, and tears to figure it out for yourself. So there's really nothing to fear from outlining your curriculum for anyone to see. If anything, it should show prospective students the quality and attention to detail you take to your instruction. One approach to building a curriculum Mr. Bluestein refers to is bricklaying. We might describe this as each class that has a focus is a brick. 
And over time, as students acquire these bricks in classes, they start to build the foundation of a house and then the house itself. As time goes by, you eventually circle back to lessons to reinforce and strengthen those bricks. Perhaps think of laying more bricks on top, building that foundation stronger. That cycle can vary greatly depending on what is considered fundamental in your art. I know I've struggled with this problem in the past where we would cover something in class, I would remember it well for, I don't know, about two weeks, and then by the time we got back to it again in six months, I would barely remember it at all. It felt like I was going through cycles of months and years of having to relearn the same material over and over again because it was so rusty by the time we got back to it that it was almost like learning it all over again. Combine this with the problem that real life always gets in the way. Some students get lots of bricks in one corner, but then miss a few weeks and miss something critical to the structure in another area, creating holes in their foundation. Someone is missing a door. Another has a roof, but only one wall. Combine this with the fact that not all students will miss all the same classes, and you have a room full of students who all have holes in different places. It's not that there is something fundamentally wrong with this bricklaying method, it's just that these problems can crop up over longer periods of time. Mr. Bluestein proposes as a solution to this that one looks at segmenting and cycling a curriculum, by which he means introducing a level of daily adaptability to the class. I've done this myself without realizing it. Our school's curriculum has had some fairly advanced material lined up for the week, and then I'll by chance get a single student in class. And it's their first day on top of that. It doesn't really make sense to throw the advanced curriculum at them, so I adapt by teaching a few simpler, basic techniques. It's not that they can't learn the more advanced stuff, it's just that it's one of those confusing centerpieces to the puzzle, while I'd rather start them at an edge or corner where they can start building the picture out in a more controlled way. Perhaps the simplest way to describe what Mr. Bluestein is suggesting is that you read the room and adjust the curriculum based on the students who showed up and what the mood of the room is feeling like. Having said that, I recognize that changing based on the air quotes mood doesn't necessarily always make sense. But if you teach an art that can be adaptable to the needs of the students, then if everyone is on edge due to, I don't know, say current events, threats of danger, a bad economy, some sort of political issue then you can adjust the class to not make things worse for your students. I really like Mr. Bluestein's approach to using the cycling and segmenting in the short term while maintaining a bricklaying method for the long term. It helps the students to have a sense of what the long-term goals and plan are while also taking into account what is going on in the student's life today. Another thing I've noticed is that, over time, my attempts to situate myself inside of my own training plan starts to get overly complex. I used to try to spreadsheet or mind map my training and map out the entire breadth and width of what I knew and was working on. This quickly became too much of a time sink and I had to let it go. I still think that method can be useful for newer people who have less that they need to track to build a core nucleus of fundamentals, but eventually we outgrow it. Mr. Bluestein also talks about when a curriculum is too much, too much window into the complexity of an art, and a new person can feel like they're drowning, like the task is too big, and they're drowning in a sea they can never escape from. This can certainly demotivate a student and eventually drive them away. 
The key, in my opinion, comes also from the curriculum. You don't need to think about the entire picture, just a small portion you are working on right now. This allows us to have a complex system and avoid becoming overwhelmed by breaking it down into smaller, manageable systems. This works in real-life problems as well. You may have a massive, overwhelming problem that is hard to even think about. But if you can break it down into smaller problems, you may find you can eventually solve portions of it, and then the greater problem doesn't seem quite so complex. Just a short while later in the book, Mr. Bluestein gets into the actual act of making the curriculum and ties it to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This is a pyramid with basic needs at the bottom that then progress up to the higher-order needs that can be accomplished if everything else is balanced for each of us as individuals. Starting at the bottom, there is, first, physiological needs, which are biological requirements for human survival, like air, food, water, shelter, clothing. The next level up, number two, is safety needs. People want to experience order, predictability, and control in their lives. Level three is love and belongingness. These refer to a human emotional need for interpersonal relationships, connectedness, and being part of a group. Level four is esteem needs, and these include self-worth, accomplishment, and respect. Lastly, level five is self-actualization. These are the highest level of Maslow's hierarchy and refer to the realization of a person's potential, self-fulfillment, seeking personal growth, and peak experiences. Perhaps, now that I think about it, this top level is what I refer to when I say I can't find the martial art in Brazilian jiu-jitsu anymore. I feel like BJJ addresses levels 2, 3, and 4 just fine, but I don't feel like it is meeting that fifth level at all. This is something for me to think more about. So anyways, this is near and dear to my heart for a couple reasons. At more than one BJJ school that I've attended, upon signing up, they sometimes ask why you're there on the sign-up form. The reasons are usually limited to self-defense, fitness, and competition. And after looking at responses, I can safely say that almost no one who is attending for the first time ever checks the competition box. I can't say I've ever seen this question being asked at any of the traditional martial arts schools I've attended, but maybe some do. The fact of the matter is that most people walk into the door because they want something to change. Maybe they feel weak, in danger, unsafe, bullied, or even abused. What unites them all is that they are seeking some kind of change. With that in mind, I always cringe when at BJJ schools the curriculum is highly competition-focused. Yes, that is what you need if you want to bring home the gold medals from the tournaments, but that's not why new people are walking in the door. That might be why a person stays in the long run, because they found the joy of the art, but that is certainly not why they first come in. When we consider this in the context of how often people quit or stop coming due to circumstances beyond their control, it seems to me that we should focus more in the early stages on providing people the basics of taking care of themselves and providing them the basic tools they need to continue training on their own after they leave. If we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we see that the physical needs of things like breathing, water, and food are at the very base of the pyramid. Not many people are going to find time for training if the basics of survival are not being met. They'll need to address that first. The next step up is safety. This is probably the most likely person for someone to walk in the door, 
they want to feel safer. The irony is that the next level up is usually the reason people stay, and that's because of community. Once people get their basic self-defense needs addressed, they'll start to worry about being part of a group or community. Unfortunately, this is also where a lot of abuse in the martial arts come in and results in cult-like behavior due to a person's desire to remain part of the group. Of course, we can all eventually find those top needs of respect, perhaps that's where competition comes in, and self-actualization eventually in the martial arts. But without those lower levels being addressed, it's going to be a weak foundation that prevents those top needs from being met. With that in mind, I was impressed when I saw some BJJ schools that were focusing a student's entire first year solely on grappling in a self-defense context. This, of course, produced students that were bad at competition. After all, they were not training their students to perform against another jiu-jitsu player. They were training them to perform against an untrained opponent outside the constraints of a competition rule set. But it got that second level of the pyramid, the safety one, addressed for the student. My guess is that when this happened, they were able to retain students a lot more consistently than schools that looked just to train really good competitors. At the end of the day, I want a school that can take someone's grandma and make her more confident and healthy, thus making her look like a less inviting target. We can churn out great gold medal winning competitors. There's nothing wrong with that but it's the people who will never win gold medals that need the martial arts the most. Our curriculums should reflect that. As Mr. Bluestein puts it, the wisest and most skillful of teachers know better than structuring an entire class around just one level of Maslow's pyramid. Instead, they teach everyone the same topic and subject, but, each, but make each student feel that for them personally, that class supported exactly the level of the pyramid they were more inclined towards that day. End quote. Can you see how this works? I can take a class and teach people the same material in a context for self-defense because they are being stalked by an abusive ex and also make it relevant to someone getting ready for a competition. The details of the technique might vary a bit. I might give the self-defense person the technique within the context of stand back up and get away, while I might have the competitor feed the technique into a chain that leads to the area that plays to their offensive strategy. But both people get different levels of the pyramid addressed at the same time. We can't be all things to all people all the time, but we can certainly expand away from just one. Adaptability in one's curriculum is a key component, and Mr. Bluestein's chapters on this topic are worth everyone's time. I'd like to finish with a slightly different topic from the book. It comes further towards the end, but it's something we should all keep in mind, and that is the idea of getting in the habit of assuming the best. Over the years, I've observed some pretty nasty behavior within the martial arts community. Gossiping, bad-mouthing, downright lying, and honestly far worse. It has at times infected my own attitude, making me a bit of a cynic towards others. So Mr. Bluestein's chapter on assuming the best was a breath of fresh air for me and a good reminder. He outlines a few examples. Has a student left your school? Assume the best. Don't attack them. Don't play games with them. People's lives outside of the martial arts fundamentally alter 
the paths of even people with the best of intentions. I've seen a lot of people come and go over the years, and it's always a joy to see someone from the past show up again. And that's when you sometimes find out they have been going through a dark place and naturally couldn't keep training, or had to switch to a different school due to logistics or whatever else. There's no need to be mad at them. When someone criticizes you, your school, or your art, assume the best. That people, or I'm sorry, that person probably has to say bad things to make themselves feel better. I see it all the time towards BJJ. People dredge up the old, tired arguments of what about multiple opponents? No one should go to the ground, or my favorite, I'll just bite them. In every case, these people are trying to convince themselves of why they don't need any grappling. They have to come up with what-if scenarios that show why they don't need to train it, even a little bit. I'm sure you can think of similar arguments people make towards your own art. I would recommend, when dealing with these sorts of people, to try to adjust people's thinking away from thinking about how a martial art doesn't work and reversing their thinking to what's the problem and what's the right tool to solve it. Fundamentally, the flaw in the logic is that people come up with a scenario where a particular tool doesn't work. If you have a screwdriver and people want to hammer a nail... Of course they're going to say the screwdriver is useless and won't work. But give these same people the problem of turning a screw, and suddenly the hammer is the wrong tool. Neither invalidates either the screwdriver or the hammer. They're just different tools. It's just the problem it's being applied to isn't the most efficient tool for the job. As Mr. Bluestein puts it, quote, being able to explain it to them coherently without the explanation sounding like an excuse may even make them change their minds. This is the ultimate victory. This is made possible only if you began the interaction by assuming the best. End quote. Those are some wise words right there. Lastly, he mentions that if you are having a hard time with your martial arts school, again, assume the best. This reminded me of a common BJJ phrase, which is, you either win or you learn. When faced with a failure... It's almost always a chance to learn. When one struggles with teaching or running a school, it's no different than our training. Sometimes we need to mess up. A few times before we get better at doing it. And that's okay. This is how even our students can at times be our teachers. They help us find those places where we can improve. Mr. Bluestein's book, The Martial Arts Teacher, is a good example of the deep well that so-called modern martial arts can learn from the traditional arts. You can find it online, easily enough on Amazon, and there is a lot more in this book than I've talked about today. There are probably hundreds of other lessons to draw from this book, and it really is written in a way that makes it applicable to any style or art. Unless the lessons of this book are pondered and considered within my own jujitsu community, I fear that the art of jiu-jitsu will be lost and go down the path of so many other martial arts that came before. Learn from the mistakes of the past so we do not repeat them in the present. The martial arts teacher is a good first step for the modern martial arts instructor that wants to leave a more lasting legacy than just another fitness club. As always, remember, don't just talk about philosophy, but like your martial art, live it.